Looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank? The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. It's all about panoramic volume and fully fanned out lashes. With its tapered brush, the new Panorama Mascara catches every single lash, giving you the false lash look without any of the hassle. Say goodbye to clumps and flakes, because this mascara is specially formulated to resist them all day with up to 24-hour wear. And the best part? It performs better than Lux mascaras at only a fraction of the cost. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. Oh, yeah. I this is an old recording of my brother, John. Hello, this is Howard Costa. Down in New York City. I only have three memories of him and a few of his things. A flat Stanley book, some comics, his lucky red rabbit's foot. Hey, Curly, these some people that aren't a basketball team want to challenge you. Are you going to challenge him? I also have this little black audio cassette of his. He liked to tape himself goofing around, doing impressions of Donald Duck and Underdog. My most vivid memory of him is from October 28th, 1973. He's 11 years old. I'm four. We're on the sidewalk in front of our house. John's on his bike. He's wiry with wavy red hair and eager to get on his way. I'm standing next to him, a stocky, playful kid with a black bowl haircut. I'm bugging him to buy me candy from the store. I want this specific thing, Snappy Gator Gum. It's candy and a toy. The gum is packaged inside the mouth of a little plastic alligator head that opens and closes when you squeeze the neck. I've seen other kids playing with it, and I really want one. He promises to get it for me, then grabs his handlebars and pedals quickly down the sidewalk toward the woods. I never saw him again. I'm David Kushner. I'm a journalist and an author. I've spent decades reporting on other people's lives. I've covered hackers, gamers, and criminals, treasure hunters and space tourists, civil rights activists, and card counters. But the story I've always been chasing, one way or another, is my brother's. I keep coming back to the same questions. How do you live knowing that unimaginable things can happen at any time? And how do you go on when they do? This is Alligator Candy. I've spent years investigating John's story. Because I was so young when he disappeared, I had to dig through old police files and witness testimonies to get the full picture of what happened. 
I tracked down people who were there at the time, police officers, neighbors, John's friends and teachers. And I talked with my family about things we'd never discussed before. The story starts in Florida in 1973. We had come from frozen upstate New York to sunny and humid Tampa, joined a local synagogue, and settled into a modest, newly built ranch house with a red Spanish-style roof, right on the edge of Tampa's growing suburbs. It was on the site of a former tree nursery, and my parents stopped the builders from taking down the lush little patch of woods in our backyard. It was a great family house. This is my mom, Lorraine. Friends and family call her Rainy. I love the idea of a new house that we could have input into. We'd make forts in the backyard and play with our pet turtles. My dad built a little fenced-in area for them with a small cement pond. I imagine we probably had this reputation in town as being the turtle family. This is my oldest brother, Andy. You know, there would be a knock on the door, unexpected, and I would answer the door, you know, and, and there would be some guy, you know, with a a gopher turtle in his hands, a big turtle. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and he said, uh, y'all collect turtles here. I'm like, yeah. I grabbed the turtle. And this happened several times. <laughs> it did. It did. I'm so happy you mentioned that. It did. People and would so just we show up. The, the door would, somebody would ring the doorbell and we'd open it. There'd be someone standing with a turtle. The kitchen had a large picture window looking out on the backyard. There was flowered wallpaper and a round white table. We each had our own matching wicker chair with an orange vinyl cushion. My dad, then me, then my mom, Andy, and John. Every night we would have dinner together. And then on Sundays, my father would make pancakes. I would have this seat at the table that would look out toward the counter. And, and a window that would look out on the backyard. And it was over there at the counter by the window, by the sink, where my father, every Sunday, he would be making pancakes. The batter would go on this, I don't know what's called, like a frying pan, you know, and, and it would be mostly big circles. He would do these tiny little circles. And first, you know, I, I think because they were crispier or something like that, you know, I liked them. But, but, you know, more than that, it was my father, you know, thinking of me and what I like and making this little special extra something for me on Sundays, you know, while he's making the rest of it for the family. Around the corner and down the hall were the bedrooms, all in a row. The first was mine, closest to my parents since I was the youngest. After dinner... I'd sprint into the room over the thick blue shag carpet with my Archie comic, plunk down on my fuzzy orange blanket, and lie on my back to look at the pictures. I'd prop my feet up against the wall with its yellow, red, and blue striped wallpaper. John's room was on the other side. Since I couldn't yet read the Archies, I'd run over to John's room so he could read them to me. Playing together in his room is one of my few memories of him. I'm cross-legged on John's shag carpet, orange instead of my blue, and I'm eyeing his colorful wallpaper, the random images popping out like a giant comic book page, a policeman, a dancer, a stop sign, with swirling words around them like love and now and pal. John grabs a little black book from his closet and sits behind me. This is why I'm here, 
It's the pilot book. It's a real pilot book with instructions and numbers and drawings of plane stuff. And we know it's real because it's from a real-life pilot. I grab for it, but he pulls it away and reads some passages about altitude and cabin settings. And the more he reads, the more our imaginations soar. He can read and I can't. He has magic powers. He knows the words. And the words are lifting our floor until the room breaks away and flies. You and John played a lot together. Andy's room was on the other side of John's. Here I am, you know, 13, eighth grade. I'm, you know, already thinking about girls and, you know, music and what am I going to do? And I just want to also kind of be off on my own. In his room, Andy had a poster that read, Start Here, with a giant red arrow pointing down to his sparkly brown drum set. Andy was studious with dark hair and glasses. He'd hole up in his room to play his drums or his trumpet, and I'd bug him to let me play with them too. But Andy usually kept the door closed, so I'd be left listening to his riffs and scales from my room down the hall. There were a lot of kids in the neighborhood, and we were free to run around for hours outside. No plans, no cell phones, just a promise to be home before dark. It was just how things were in the 70s. We were unbuckled and unrestrained free from seatbelts or helmets or meticulously organized playdates. Our freedom extended to the small hippie school that we went to. We didn't get letter grades there. We worked at our own pace in round brown buildings in a giant yellow geodesic dome. Peacocks roamed the campus. The kids and teachers all seemed to have long straight hair and frayed blue jeans. And on nice days, we'd have classes outside by the lake, which kids would canoe across to get to school. Our house was just a short walk away. We could hear the kids from our house. And some of the neighbors said, doesn't it bother you to hear the kids at recess? It was comforting for me. It was fun. My mom and dad liked the school because it was unstructured in a way that let us just be kids. I never liked um, what you're supposed to like, you know? And so a kid, putting a kid in a restricted, strict environment was just not going to work, especially for John. John was bright, but he struggled with his classes. He seemed to have difficulty understanding the lessons. It felt frustrating for him. My parents took him to see a child psychologist in town, who figured out that John suffered from an auditory deficit disorder, which made it difficult for him to process information that he heard. But he worked hard with his speech therapist and teachers, and when he started fifth grade in the fall of 1973, he was feeling more confident. We'd moved to Tampa three years earlier in 1970. The age of Aquarius had spawned the free-to-be-you-and-me generation. The Beatles had recently broken up. The Mod Squad ruled TV. My dad, Gil, played folk songs for us on his guitar. He was a tall, bearded intellectual in glasses, headstrong, passionate, and funny. The chair of the anthropology department at the University of South Florida. His friends joked that he looked like Tommy Chong from the comedy duo Cheech and Chong. 
His father died young, so my dad was raised by a single mother in the Bronx. My mom uh, had great responsibilities. What I remember about her is that she was uh, always concerned with making a living and putting food on the table. We didn't have a nickel in the bank, and I guess we were very, very poor. I didn't realize that until much, much later. Weaned on Pete Seeger, he became a human rights activist in college and spent a year in Israel with my mom and Andy as he wrote his dissertation on Jews who had immigrated there from India. He actually cut a record. Here's him singing Old Joe Clark with his friend Mike Murbaum in Durham, North Carolina. I wish I had a sweetheart, I'd set her on the shelf. And every time she smile at me, I'd climb up there myself. My mom was progressive too. She grew up in Minneapolis, worked for a jazz label, and had recently become a childbirth educator. In those days, women were put under during delivery, and their partners weren't allowed in the delivery room with them. My mom was part of a growing movement of women who demanded the right to be awake and present when their babies took their first breaths, and they wanted their partners alongside them too. She brought a new technique called Lamaze to Tampa. She taught women how to breathe through incredible pain, and she taught them out of our living room. The essence of it is you slow your breathing. We just call it a cleansing breath, and then... The biggest memory from those days are all the pregnant women coming into the house with with uh, their blankets and pillows and, and beads and, and <laughs> long hair. So you practice letting go. There's a small black and white photo I have from that time. Andy took it in the summer of 73. At 13, he was really into photography. He had us pose for a portrait when we were all together at a lake near our house. The pier kind of jutted out into this lake. So the picture was surrounded by water. There were houses on the banks of the lake far away. It was definitely during the day. The sun was out, full blast. You know, typical Florida sun, Florida heat. My dad's sitting on the dock with his long, dark hair and beard. He's wearing blue jeans, a denim long sleeve shirt, and shades. My mom's sitting next to him, wearing a white sleeveless shirt. And her hair is in a short black bob. I'm standing beside her and smiling, with my arms outstretched, double-jointed at the elbow. And John's standing behind me with his wavy hair and a dark striped shirt. He's looking toward Andy, who probably just told us to smile. And um, it was just a sweet picture, you know, it was just, to me it encapsulated, you know, a wonderful, wonderful, happy family moment of us being all bonded together, going out together, doing something nice together. It's the last picture of us with John.
Okay, so it's Sunday, January 19th. 19th. For nearly a year, my friend Aria dated men she met online. Lots of duds, disappointments, and some disasters. But then along came Mordecai, and Aria fell hard. I opened the door. There was a woman standing there, and she said, I think you know someone named Mordecai Horowitz? And I said, oh, you better come in. In 2019, a friend of mine fell for a sensitive millionaire named Mordecai. And then she found out she wasn't the only one. It was way too good to be true. I'm Kathleen Goldhar, the host of Do You Know Mordecai from USG Audio. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. October 28th started like any other Sunday in our house. Andy woke up to the sounds of John and me playing in the living room. Our favorite toy is the Verdi Bird, a battery-powered helicopter. The blades make a satisfying buzzing sound as John works the controls, stirring up a little breeze and the serious possibility of getting smacked in the face. We bury tiny plastic astronauts in the yellow shag carpet, then fly the vertebrate over to save them. Every time we rescue an astronaut, we cheer. And when one of us gets thwacked in the face, we burst out laughing. While we were playing, Andy was getting ready for a youth club meeting at the synagogue. And I remember that morning... Um, we were going to have uh, some other kid whose mother, we would, they would carpool, my parents and, and them. And I remember him showing up early. I remember him kind of coming out of the car. I could see through the window, standing and leaning against the door with his arms crossed. And so I wanted to pretend like I didn't see them. And I remember you and John in the living room, like I was at the time, and I told you, don't show yourself in the window. The three of us hid behind the curtains, trying not to crack up. We sneaked peeks to see if the other kid was still there. Eventually, he and his mom left without Andy, so our mom had to take Andy across town herself. After they left, John mowed the lawn. Then he asked my dad if he could take the money he'd earned for the chore and bike to the 7-Eleven for candy. My dad said okay and settled into his big black chair in the den to watch a football game. And here I am in that last memory I have of John. I'm standing on the sidewalk outside our house. He's straddling his red bike beside me. It's got a long red banana-shaped seat and shiny chrome handlebars. He's wearing a brown muscle shirt and blue cut-off shorts with a patch from his day camp sewn onto them. 
His feet in their hush puppy sneakers are bobbing on the pedals. He's eager to take off, aiming for the trees at the end of the block, the palms and cypresses covered with twisted gray moss. Those woods are where all the big kids go to get to the 7-Eleven. I want to go too, but I can't, he tells me. I'm too young. Then there's something you better get me, I tell him. Snappy gator gum. He promises he'll get it. Then he turns to the woods and pedals away. Around three o'clock, Andy came home from his youth group and immediately took off on his bike for the mall to meet up with friends. My parents were hosting a havara that evening, a small social gathering for people in the synagogue. While my dad watched the game, my mother ran some errands, getting snacks and supplies. When she got back home at 4.30, John wasn't around. I said, where's John? And didn't know. His bike wasn't in the garage. Panic when you don't see a kid. He'd left for the 7-Eleven around noon. Three and a half hours later, he still wasn't back. It wasn't like John to be away so long. They called his friends, but no one had seen him. He was too young to take off, you know, like that. It was, he went to that 7-Eleven. He didn't come back. What happened? Terrible. Terrible. Fear. How can you explain it? It's, it's visceral. It's physical. Emotional. It's everything. It's terror. After searching around our house and checking with neighbors and friends, my dad called the police at 5 p.m. He told them that John was missing. Then my mom started dialing members of the Havara. I remember calling people and saying, we're not doing this. John is missing. And from that moment, the hurricane commenced. People started showing up at our house. Cops, friends, neighbors. A few at first, then more and more people crowding into the living room, the kitchen, the den. My parents often had parties at the house, so I'd seen people milling around, but never with urgency like this. It's a blurred memory, but it's very uh, emotional memory. You know, just the, the total stress. And lots of people... Lots of action. If you could imagine all that, it was all kinds of things happening. By six o'clock, there were over a hundred people spread out over the neighborhood, looking for my brother. The search had officially begun. Andy got back from the mall around then. He had no idea what was happening when he biked around the corner and onto our street. And I see all these cars and police cars. You know, what the hell is going on here? It was foreboding. When he walked through the front door, he felt everyone's eyes on him. And it was just somber. I think it was my mother who said, with a very concerned look on her face, John is missing. I thought he would come back or they would find him or something. He was at a friend's and nobody knew. I I thought something like that was going to happen. Who the hell goes missing? It was when it went into the evening that I realized that this is way more serious and this is not looking good. 
The volunteers and police kept searching in the dark, combing the woods for my brother. I remember at some point that night, an officer came to the front door with news. I'm standing near the foyer. I hear the police say something about finding John's bike. And I think, they found him. The game's over. John's back. I run down the hall to tell Andy. He's sitting on the edge of his bed, dazed and looking at the floor. They found him, I say. They found him. Andy's expression doesn't change, and he doesn't say anything. I follow him as he slowly walks out of the room. We go back to the foyer where everyone's still standing, still looking serious and sad. And now I understand. They haven't found John. They only found his bike. I mean, finding his bike, that's when I knew. It was the bike. The finding of the bike is when I just knew that something terrible had happened. Andy had a little hope that it was all a misunderstanding, that John would come home while he was sleeping, and that Andy would wake up the next morning to the sounds of John and me playing together in the living room again. As I lay in my bed down the hall, I could hear the police chopper flying over our house. They were using a spotlight to try to find John, just like John and I tried to save the astronaut hidden in the rug with our toy helicopter. But John and I weren't playing, and this wasn't a game. He was gone. It would take me decades to unravel what happened, pouring over every memory, every photo, every clue, down to the tape he made not long before he vanished. We still forgot Cruelly. Cruelly? Have you been driving that white car yet? You killed them? Are you police going to arrest you? Um, we'll be back after this commercial. This is Walter Conkai with CBS News. Goodbye. On the next episode of Alligator Candy. On one hand, I desperately wanted to find something and on the other hand I was absolutely terrified of finding something this episode was produced by Alex Sujan Laughlin with production support from James T. Green our executive editor is Sarah Nix Lacey Roberts is our managing producer executive producing by me David Kushner along with Greta Cohn and Emmy Rossum Sound designed by James T. Green and Eli Cohn and Nocturnal Sound. Rick Kwan is our mix engineer. Special thanks to Shoshi Shmulevitz and Kiara Powell. Our USG audio team includes Jessica Grimshaw, Josh Block, Jennifer Sears, and Daniel Welsh. This podcast was inspired by my memoir, Alligator Candy. This is a USG audio podcast in collaboration with Transmitter Media. For more information, go to our website, usgaudio.com. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. 
Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.